Well, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here. And today we're going to be talking about Bart Ehrman and his quote unquote debunking of the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, before we jump right in, I want to say that I uh, have done uh, other work on the resurrection in the debate that I have with Matt Dillahunty. I laid out my most recent case uh, for the resurrection of Jesus, and you can check it out there. Um, I'll link it in the description, and uh, you can you can listen to the full thing there because I'm not going to provide the case for the resurrection in this video at length like I do there in that setting. But uh, very briefly, uh, I base my case on the resurrection on four uh, bedrock facts that are uh, universally accepted by scholars. There are always a few outliers, but they definitely enjoy the consensus. In order for something to be considered a bedrock fact, it has to have two things going for it. One, it's highly evidenced, and two, it enjoys the consensus of critical scholarship, and that scholarship might include atheists, agnostics, Christians, and others. In the uh, video, I lay out several quotes from people of varying uh, worldviews in the debate video, and you can, you can, you can look through all that there. Um, then if you want to go further with that, you can check out my video response to Godless Engineer in Pine Creek because in that one I uh, went over uh, what I call recalibrated plausibility and how that uh, handles these things. That may come up in this video, but uh, very briefly, uh, these are the four facts that I go with. That Jesus thought of himself as God's special eschatological agent. Uh, that means God's special agent to bring about the kingdom on earth. Um, that's a modest claim. I'm not claiming that he thought he was going to be raised from the dead or anything like that. Although um, I do think we could we could uh, argue that way, and and I, I think there's good reason to believe that. But just going with what I think is uh, acceptable uh, and very modest, I I, I give you that uh, Jesus uh, thought of himself as God's special eschatological agent, that he died by Roman crucifixion, that people. Uh, had experiences after Jesus' death that they interpreted to be appearances of the risen Christ and that those people so radically changed their lives that some of them were willing to die for it. Uh, those are my claims. I think those are heavily supported, and I think the best explanation for those facts is that uh, God raised Jesus from the dead. But we're going to get into a little bit of the criticisms of that sort of thing in this video because what happens in this video is the classic Bart Ehrman case. Now, the reason that I felt compelled to do this is because uh, it seems to be the case that among a lot of people on the internet, they may not have actually listened to some of these uh, scholarly sources that don't have big, robust YouTube channels. At least I don't think Bart Ehrman maybe does. I don't know. But they, they, don't, they don't go check out these guys that um, over the past 20 years have been making the biggest waves because it, that, that noise gets drowned out by what's going on in the YouTube community with you know professional YouTubers. And so as a result, sometimes people don't hear some of these voices and the debates that, that, that take place among the top shelf Christian scholars and professors and philosophers and all that sort of thing, and the top shelf skeptics, agnostics, or atheists, okay? So uh, we're going to listen to one here, and we're going to provide some responses. Now, I think this was taken from a debate uh, with Mike, my friend Mike Lycona, uh, but we're not going to look at Lycona's side of it. And if I've listened to Lycona's side of it, which I'm sure I have, it was years and years ago. So in preparation for this video, which basically included me watching the video this morning and now watching it the second time with you to make responses, I haven't listened to Lycona's uh, 
to Lycona's responses to airmen. So I think what I'm going to say in this video might be more in line with what Lycona would say today. But as this took place several years ago, I don't I don't know what Lycona would would argue back. Uh, so I encourage you to go check out that debate. But I'm just going to give my responses, and um, I think we need to do that. We needed a, a resurrection response video here. So uh, thanks for joining me for this, and let's go ahead and listen to what Airman has to say. Historians have to have evidence. Well, what kind of evidence do they look for? The best kind of evidence when dealing with ancient periods is to find evidence that goes back to the time itself. If you had some contemporary eyewitnesses telling you how Simon Peter died, that would be brilliant. Unfortunately, you don't have that. You would love, though, to have contemporary accounts written, written the, like the next day from the events. That would be great. Uh, historians would love that kind of thing. Historians would love to have lots of sources. You want to have lots of sources that go back to the time of the events that are being narrated. You would like these sources to be independent of one another. If, if you have 20 sources, but they all got their story from the same guy, then you don't have 20 sources. You have one source. Okay, a couple of things about this. Uh, first of all, um, I want you to notice a subtle thing that's happening in this video. Uh, the subtle thing in this presentation is that what he's, he's saying is, here is what historians would love to have. Well, okay, yeah, historians would love to have it. You know, we can go further with that. We could say, you know what they'd really love to have? They'd really love to have a video uh, recording of the resurrection from inside the tomb. That's what they'd really love to have. Yeah, that would be great, but we don't have that. And going through a list of how the, basically what we're seeing here is a list of items that would demonstrate how he thinks the case would be better, how, how the case for the resurrection would be even better, how the evidence would be even better. Well, no matter what the evidence is, you can almost always imagine more or ways that it could be better. Like even if we had video footage, oh well, it'd be it'd be best. You know, real historians and people like that would re what they'd love to have is uh, 4K, um, uh, you know, resolution video, uh, you know, evidence. Right? You can always one up the evidence, but uh, but that's not but, but that's one thing that's going on here. And you're going to see in just a few moments, he's giving the impression, I'm not going to say this is intentional, but what's happening in this uh, good presentation, like he's a good orator, is he's giving you the impression that what we have is not good enough for historians to draw conclusions about this. That's, that's the point. But he hasn't come right out and said that. What he said is, here's what historians would love to have. And then here in a few moments, he's going to say, is that what we have? Well, again, I could parrot that by saying, here's what historians would love to have. They'd love to have 4K video of it. Uh, but that doesn't mean that what you do have for a given historical event isn't good enough. And there's a subtle move there that I want you to notice that he's giving the impression that what we have isn't good enough. But what he's actually said is that he's telling you what they would love, what they would prefer to have, what they love to have, the better evidence that we can imagine. Right. So that's uh, an important feature in this, because I think what most people would come away from this is saying, well, yeah, I guess that historians can't assess uh, the, the death and later appearances of Jesus. I guess that's not in their purview because we don't have what's acceptable historical evidence. No, no, no. That's not the point. What, what that's the impression that is being given. But all he's really said, and I agree with him, is they love to have these things. Well, OK, but again, they love to have 4K video footage. Uh, the second thing is he's giving the impression here, and I, I don't doubt that he believes this, but um, he's giving the impression here that 
that all of the sources, now he's going to talk about Paul here in just a few minutes as an independent source, but he's going to talk about all of these gospel sources as all relying on one source, namely Mark. And that's a little bit, I mean, it is, if you take Mark in priority, which I do, um, and, and you say, okay, it looks like there are pieces in Matthew and Luke uh, that that are where they're taking from Mark. They're, they're giving you what, what they got from Mark. It's, you know, it's almost verbatim in cases, okay? So, yeah, that's true. But many scholars believe that also you had another source for Luke and you had another source for Matthew. And then you had the Q material, right, that Matthew and Luke share. So uh, there are more sources than just one going on here. And this idea that, well, you've just got one source. Again, he's not outright saying it. He's saying it's not great He's, now, notice what he's not saying. He's not saying, in this case that we're talking about, this is what's happening. What he's saying is, um, it's not great when you have multiple sources that all just go back to just one source. So there are subtle verbal uh, turns that are made here that give you certain impressions that are not actually the fact of the matter. And he's not actually saying the things that he's giving you an impression of. Now, I want you to notice that. Let's keep going. You want, you want 20 independent sources who all attest the same. Now, now notice again, he says, you want 20 independent sources. Now, we draw conclusions about historical events all the time where we don't have 20 sources. We, we draw conclusions about historical events where we don't have near the level that we have, I'm sorry, with the life of Jesus. However, he's doing it again. He's, he's upping the ante. Would historians love to have 20 sources? Yeah, they would. Would historians love to have 10 sources? Yeah, they would. But whatever the number of sources are, you can always up the ante and say, yeah, but it's not as good as this. And this is classic moving the goalpost. And he's aware that there are historical... Bart Ehrman's not an idiot. This is a highly scholarly individual. Now, we could say something like there are two Bart Ehrmans, right? There, are the, there is the Bart Ehrman that uh, writes books aimed at the popular level that makes claims that I don't think, you know, that are a little bit, you know... Uh, gives impressions that are that are a little bit out there. And then there is the scholarly academic Bart Ehrman that is much more reserved in his claims, I think. Um, but Bart Ehrman's no idiot. He knows that we make conclusions about historical events all the time with uh, less material than we have for the life of Jesus and the growth of the early church. He knows that. So, so what we have here is a real moving of the goalposts but in terms of the popular level thinking, he's saying things like what we'd really love to have is 20 sources, and we don't deny that. But that doesn't mean that that's what's required to come to a reasonable conclusion about things. Uh, to the same event. Moreover, you want these independent sources to be consistent with one another. You don't want them to be contradicting each other all over the map. You want them to be agreeing with one another. So you want them to uh, corroborate one another without collaborating with one another. Moreover, you want... Okay, so we're going to talk about that in just a few moments because in a few moments he's going to go through his uh, rant that he typically goes through where he, he if you've heard Bart Ehrman uh, ever really debate the resurrection, he goes through the gospel accounts and he says it depends which gospel you read. It depends which gospel you read. And we're going to, we're going to go through that and I'm going to tell you, uh, we're going to talk more about this consistent with one another thing in just a few moments. But uh, So we'll leave that, we'll table that for now. You want them to be unbiased toward the subject matter. You don't want them to be skewing things in light of their own self-interests. <coughs> now, notice something here. 
there's two different things that he just said, but he made it sound like they were the same thing. You want unbiased sources, um, and you, and then he said, you, you don't want them to be skewing things. Okay, well, okay, those are two different claims. Someone could genuinely not be, someone could genuinely be biased and still not be skewing things. Okay, but, the, but again, from audience perception, he has made it sound like those two things hang together. And it goes down smooth when you're hearing him talk because in a lot of cases, those two things do go together. Oftentimes, biased people do skew things based on their own perspective. It's why in historiography, they try to do what they call limiting their horizons. Horizons is a term for your perspective, which can be your bias. So you, you try to limit that, and you have to work to do that. And good historians will point out that you can't ever completely eliminate bias. Bart Ehrman has bias. Any historian that we can imagine that would have existed during the period who could have covered the events of Jesus' life um, is going to have a bias in some direction or another. You can't do anything about that. What you can try to do is to limit that bias. But, the, but, that's a, but it's a separate claim to say that they're skewing things. Uh, again, we'll get to are they skewing things in just a few minutes. But um, I also want to say about this. I've always found it odd when people say this because what what now Airman I don't know if in this video his debate he actually comes right out and says it, but there are people on YouTube who are not quite as careful with their tongue as Airman, and they'll say things like they'll come right out and say things on the heels of what Airman has said in in a situation like this, and they'll say uh, you know uh, what we want is someone who can uh, can give a uh, eyewitness account of the resurrection who is non-biased about whether Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that may sound like I'm not giving a very charitable uh, reading of what atheists on some atheists on YouTube say, but I'm saying it like some of them say it. And if you saw an obvious problem there, which I hope you did, you're not alone. I see that problem too. The problem is asking for an eyewitness to an event who is non-biased in the sense that He's not taking a position on whether the event occurred is absurd. Asking for someone to serve as an eyewitness to the risen Jesus and write that down and give you testimony from a non-biased perspective who doesn't necessarily believe that Jesus rose from the dead is no different than asking for an eyewitness to a car crash who takes no position on whether the car crash actually happened. Uh, that makes no sense, and such a person would be useless. And we would say about them, what's wrong with you? You're telling me about the car crash, and you're telling me you don't know if the car crash happened. You're non-biased about whether there was a car crash. I mean, that's absurd, right? And so whenever I hear people on YouTube, and really what he's kind of implying here, whenever you're giving, whenever I hear people on the internet, scholarly or not, say that we need non-biased uh eyewitnesses for the resurrection, I'm thinking, have you thought through that sentence and considered what that means? A non-biased source to evidence the, the raised Jesus who takes no position on whether Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it boggles the mind. Let's continue. If you're an ancient historian trying to establish what probably happened in the past, what kind of sources do we have when it comes to the Gospels? The Gospels are our sources for knowing about the resurrection of Jesus. Are they the kind of sources that historians would want when trying to establish what probably happened in the past? Okay, now notice the wording again. Are they the kind of sources that historians would want? Now, want is a bit subjective. 
And we're going to get more to the subjectivity of historiography in just a few moments because you might think, oh, well, yeah, but Braxton, if you were if you were a historian, you would know that it's not. When we're talking about what they want, there's all this criteria. Yeah, we're going to get to that in a minute, I think. But here, here's the thing I want to say about this. Uh, we're back to the, the 4K video of with it from with from inside the tomb, you know, with uh, complete with like, you know, Anderson Cooper there, you know, telling you about the event as it happens and unfolds and broadcast live on television. That's the kind of evidence that historians would want. I mean, wouldn't they want that? Yeah, they would want that. Does that mean that what we have isn't good enough to draw historical conclusions? You know, those are two different things. I just want to point out, again, when we're getting this uh, carefully worded stuff, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that, that Airman is necessarily trying to uh, do this. I'm not saying he's being dishonest or anything like that. But what I am saying is this is a carefully worded script and what it gives you is the impression that we don't have what we could call historical evidence for this, uh, at least not good historical, that a working historian could use. Uh, we don't have what they would want. Well, want, come on, th there's a lot they might want that they don't have with any historical event, but they have to work with what they've got. And actually what we have for the uh, life and death and appearances of Jesus and growth of the early church is fantastic. I think the answer to that question is no. When were the Gospels written? Well, they are not contemporary to the events they narrate. Scholars debate when the Gospels were written, but by far the, the, the most common datings are that Mark was written sometime around 65 or 70 AD, Luke and Matthew about 15 or 10 or 15 years later, John maybe 10 or 15 years later, John maybe around the year 90. Okay, now, he's not wrong there, except uh, we need to hone in a little bit more. So we can back that up a little bit. Uh, the, the majority of scholars think that Mark was written sometime between 50 and 70 A.D. Now, if you want to take that 10 to 15 years later deal that he's doing after Mark, if you back Mark up then the rest, and you back the rest of them up, um, it makes a big difference. But there are actually scholars that are not evangelicals who place— uh, Mark even earlier than that, even earlier than 50 uh, A.D. So, uh, but yeah, between 50 and 70 A.D. Um, now, when you say these are these sources are not contemporary, they are in the living memory of the events. I mean, there are people that were alive as Jesus' disciples who were alive when these gospels were written, and that's the pertinent thing that I want to cover there. That's what I want to say about that. So there's an an, an it's, it, when you say they're not contemporary, it, again, it gives the impression that this was in a different time and place, completely detached. Um, but they're not in a different time and place, con completely detached. They're in the lifespans of the people that were there. And we'll talk more about that in just a few moments. Or 95, Matthew and Luke, around 80 to 85. These are the dates that are taught uh, throughout the universities and divinity schools and seminaries of North America and Europe. I, th I take them to be right for reasons that I can give you if anybody really wants to know. It's a complicated argument. Yeah, what's interesting about this, again, is he speaks about those dates, even the ones he gives. He speaks about those dates as if that's like, um, as if that works against us, you know? That is incredibly early. That's fantastic. So thumbs up. If these dates are correct, it means that our earliest account of Jesus' resurrection is 40 years after the event. 40 years after the event. Well, okay, now, now I want you to notice something happening right here. This is key. 
So he's just said our earliest account. In fact, let's go back and hear it again. Let's go back and hear it again. That our earliest account of Jesus' resurrection is 40 years after the event. 40 years after the event. Well, okay, he has just said this means that our earliest account is 40 years after the event. Okay, now the audience heard that. Now, again, I'm, I'm, I'm just pointing out audience perception and YouTube viewer perception. Some people, as soon as they hear that, that is such a shocking uh, statement or powerful statement that they hear that and then they, you know, they write that down as a note or a mental note and that he said it slow and emphatic and yeah, the earliest stuff comes 40 years after. Okay. And then they might miss where he corrects himself immediately after in a brushing off sort of a way. So listen to this. Well, Paul was writing before that, wasn't it? Yes, Paul was writing before that. Paul talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. Well, that's 20 years after the event. Okay, now, now think about that. He just said this means our earliest source is from 40 years after the event, and then immediately has to say, well, there was Paul. I mean, that was 20 years after. And, and again, speaking as though that's this 20 years after is a bad thing when that's really, really early and half again earlier than what you just told us was the earliest source and that people probably wrote down as a note was their earliest source and made mental notes and you were really emphatic then and made a big deal about it and now you're brushing off, well, I mean, yeah, Paul, but I mean, that's 20 years after. I mean, that's an important feature. Plus, he doesn't he doesn't talk about, and, and it's fair, he's in a debate uh, when it's when it's stuff that, you know, um, is going to support the other side. You leave the other side to deal with that, right? But he doesn't even bring up the fact that 1 Corinthians 15 actually includes a creedal statement that scholars believe goes back to five years or earlier uh, the, uh, to, from the uh, resurrection of Jesus or whatever you want to say, the, the death and uh, the death of Jesus and the people claiming that they saw him alive. Five years of that or earlier. And there are some people not hospitable to the Christian perspective here that put it earlier than five years. He doesn't even talk about that, right? Which completely flies in the face of everything he just said. Uh, if for those of you that want to go further with that, you can check out, um, uh, I think I talk about it in uh, the Godless Engineer video response I did. But First uh, Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. I think verse 8 is where Paul includes himself, but verses 3 through 7. Th this is, this is uh, an, in the, uh, an, an early creedal statement that people believe uh, Paul was using. He was giving it because they would be familiar with it or it would help them to remember it. But it was an early creedal statement that goes back long before the writing of 1 Corinthians to within just a few years of the events, which flies in the face of Airman's whole 40 years. Oh, I mean 20 years, but don't don't pay attention to the 20 years. Uh, 40 years, uh, 20 years, or whatever. Um, it flies in the face of all that because we have something that comes that demonstrates that almost immediately after Jesus' uh, uh, death and resurrection, we have people uh, in the early church running around saying he was dead, buried, and rose again, and that he appeared to these people and appeared to these people. I mean, that's powerful stuff. Let's keep going. So that's better. The Gospels give There's us mine. the narratives. Paul makes reference to it, 20, but there's a 20-year gap. You don't have somebody who is there writing about it. Second point, none of the authors were eyewitnesses. Paul himself indicates that he was not an eyewitness, and none of the gospel writers was an eyewitness. People, of course, call the gospel books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
Well, they call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because we don't know who wrote these books, and there's no point calling them Sam, Fred, Jerry, and, ha and Harry. I mean, they're, they're written by people. We don't know who they were written by. They are anonymous. You might not think so because they have the title, The Gospel According to Matthew. Whoever put that title on it was an editor later. The original books are all anonymous, written in the third person. Moreover, the followers of Jesus were Aramaic-speaking peasants from Galilee, lower-class men who were not educated. In fact, Peter and, uh, and John in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, are literally said to be illiterate. They couldn't read and write. Of course not. They were fishermen. They didn't go to school. The vast majority of people in the ancient world never learned to read, let alone write. And their native language was Aramaic. These books are written in Greek by highly educated, rhetorically trained writers who are skilled in Greek composition. Probably not disciples and don't claim to be disciples. Okay, now let's say a few things about this. Eyewitnesses, um, I recommend the the book on this issue is Richard Bauckham's uh, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. Uh, two books that I think would be really helpful for anyone interested in this is Jesus Outside the New Testament uh, by Van Voorst and Jesus and, uh, and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. In fact, there's a newer edition of it that just recently came out. And the, the you, here's here's the thing are these things written by eyewitnesses well first of all he kind of goes back and forth between talking about that and talking about the names attached to the gospels uh let me knock that one down pretty quick because it's it's pretty uh it's pretty simple so uh matthew mark luke and john um from 200 a.d from as early as 200 A.D., we have those titles attached to these Gospels. So when it comes to trusting uh, what people think about this, you know, th this may not, you know, your mileage may vary on this, but I prefer to listen to people living 200 years uh, in 200 A.D., not even 200 years after these events, to Bart Ehrman living in the 21st century on, uh, the, you know, the names attached to these things. But uh, we can go further than that. Uh a slight majority of critical scholars, a slight majority, now I'm not saying, I'm being, I want you to notice here I'm being modest with my claims, a slight majority of critical scholars, again, this includes atheists, agnostics, everybody, believes that Mark was written by someone giving you the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Okay, there's internal evidence in the, uh, in the, the, the gospel of Mark to make you think that we could go over that in some other video. Um, but, uh, but they believe that they believe that, um, Ma uh, that Luke was written by someone who was a traveling companion of Paul and who had access to some of the disciples of Jesus, a traveling companion of Paul and had access to some of the disciples of Jesus. Now, that sounds like Luke. If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a Luke, okay? Um, so Mark, Luke, uh, John is believed. Now, John is the one that everyone wants to throw under the bus because it sounds a little bit more extravagant in its claims. As uh, Airman says, it's, it's believed to have been written a little bit later, maybe in the 90s uh, AD or even around 100 AD. Okay, but uh, a slight majority of scholars believe that John was written either by a lesser-known disciple of Jesus or someone giving you the testimony of a lesser-known disciple of Jesus. Now, 
among that uh, slight majority that believes that it was written by some someone giving you a disciple of Jesus or uh, someone giving you the testimony of, of a disciple of Jesus, there is a constituency there that believes that it's John, the son of Zebedee. So I, I think it should impress you. I want you to be impressed by this, that scholars actually believe that uh, the people who wrote these things are people who are really, number one, they're giving you, uh, they're giving you eyewitness testimony. Uh, so again, Mark is giving you Peter. Uh, Luke is giving you, uh, uh, the, you know, some of the, he had contact with disciples of Jesus, uh, maybe the women followers, for example. And then uh, John is giving you the eyewitness testimony of, of somebody who is a disciple of Jesus. That, that should impress you. That, that, that's the slight majority. Now, what about Matthew? Well, the, the majority of scholars do not believe that Matthew was written by Matthew. However, uh, Papias, who was living uh, toward the end of the first century and the beginning of the second century, Papias was living in Hierapolis. Now, this is pretty cool to me because just last fall, I visited Hierapolis. And, um, in, and, and I, I, maybe I'll throw in some shots here of, of when I visited Hierapolis. They've got uh, just below it now, it's a place called Pamukkale, and there's this white, um, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, geological formation all over the hillside there, and these natural uh, pools of water just all over. It's amazing. But anyway, um, uh, Papias lived there, and it's in modern day Turkey. And it was just down the road from two disciples, lesser-known disciples of Jesus, still living during his lifetime, and that is Aristius and John the Elder. And people would travel through Hierapolis, and Papias made a point to write down uh, anything that he could get about, uh, you know, disciples of Jesus or what was going on when Jesus was on earth and, and what was going on with the apostles and all these kind of things. He was keeping records of, of sorts. And we have some of Papias as it has survived through other writings. And what, so what Papias tells us is that we have something that Matthew wrote, okay? Now, if we have something that Matthew wrote and we have a gospel with Matthew's name attached to it by 200, then it's reasonable to think that Papias, the, the gospel that we call Matthew, Papias is saying that Matthew wrote it. It could also be, and some scholars hold this, that the Q material, the material that, that is shared by Matthew and Luke, that that material, which is, which is believed to be sayings stuff, was what Matthew wrote. And if that's the case, you may even have. He said you may want someone, you want someone writing it down as it's happening at the time. You may actually have had someone writing these things down. So that's all pretty interesting stuff. But what it tells us is that we have these, um, these eyewitness testimonies in at least three of the Gospels. Now, how do, they make that, how do they come to that conclusion? Well, this is going to come up again in just a few moments. But one thing that was like a nuclear bomb going off underneath Gospel scholarship uh, in the past few decades is the, uh, the, the, the scholarship coming to believe that what we have in the Gospels is what is called Greco-Roman biography. That's a genre of literature. And it's important to know the genre, even within history, to know which genre. Is it narrative? Is it, <coughs> is it biography? What, what kind of history is this? And once we understood that these are Greco-Roman biography, then that allowed us to then look at what do we know are the literary conventions from the period in writing a Greco-Roman biography. Do we have anything like that? Well, as a matter of fact, we do. One thing that we have is the writings of Plutarch. And I am currently reading through the, the works of Plutarch. If you haven't read, uh, say, for example, the lives of the noble Greeks and Romans, 
Um, it's fantastic. I mean, it's really action-packed. I mean, the first, right off the jump, you get Theseus and, uh, it, you know, it's some Hunger Games type stuff. It's really, it's really interesting thing there. So I encourage you to, to read Plutarch. And Plutarch is, is writing a Greco-Roman biography. And as a result, we can look at how did he, among his own, so we have multiple biographies, multiple lives from Plutarch that cover some of the same events. And we're able to look at what his conventions were. And at some, sometimes we have people talking a little bit about how they wrote. And um, so when we apply that, we learn some things. One of the things that we learn after studying Greco-Roman biography is that some uh, people writing Greco-Roman biography, in some cases, would cite their sources in an interesting way. They didn't have like uh, Microsoft Word where they could put a footnote down there, insert footnote. You know, they didn't have that. So one thing that they did, uh, some, I'm trying to be careful here, some authors in some cases, is that they would uh, do what's referred to as an inclusio. An inclusio is where you give away who your source is. In a, you could do that in a couple of ways. One, you could give the name of a figure in your account, which it's not really, it doesn't seem important that you would give that figure. Like, why are you, why are you telling us this person's name? Well, they might have told you that person's name because that person is the source for that particular pericope. Um, or you might have, you might begin and end a particular story by focusing on that particular character and, and giving their name. So uh, in the Gospel of Mark, for example, uh, Mark gives you an inclusio of Peter. That's one of the reasons we, we believe that Peter was the source for uh, the author of Mark. And the, the way he begins, I think it's in chapter 1, verse 16, he talks about Peter, and, and then he talks about Peter toward the end of the story. This, this is one of many internal reasons to believe that Mark's source is Peter. He's giving you who his source was. Um, so you have uh, with, with Luke, uh, Luke specifically has an inclusio of Peter um, and of the women followers of Jesus. Um, we've talked about Mark. John has an inclusio. His inclusio is the beloved disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved. And uh, he does give a nod to the importance of Peter as well. We, we also, uh, if you want to know how we can come to this conclusion about the use of inclusio, we have non-biblical uses of the inclusio. So Lucian's Alexander or the false prophet uses an inclusio of uh, Rutilianus. And uh, Porphyry's On the Life of Plotinus and the Order of His Books contains an inclusio of Aemilius. So we have these uh, uses of the inclusio in the ancient literature that is Greco-Roman biography. And so we actually can recognize some of these, um, some of these sources. So that's an important thing. Uh, I don't know if I need to get into this now, but I'll go ahead and say it. Um, also, we have in the Gospels and in Acts, we have what appears to be the uh, apostles of Jesus serving as the guarantors and tradents of the gospel message. Um, you'll notice that in at least three of the gospels they give you, and in Acts, they give you uh, the, who the disciples were, um, even if a particular disciple isn't a primary figure in one of the gospels, because these are the guarantors and tradents of this thing. So you can go back, and this gets a little bit into the difference that is glossed over in this discussion between oral tradition and oral history. 
So the way you typically think about uh, oral tradition is, well, you know, uh, the, the church started uh, believing this, and then it was like a game of telephone where you go around the room whispering in each other's ear a message, and then when you get to the end, it's completely changed, it's completely different, and that's how the early church was. They just believed this stuff on oral transmission, and it changed as it went. No, no, no. No, they had guarantors and tradents of the gospel tradition. So they kept pointing back to the apostles, pointing back to these uh, disciples. Why, by the way, is it that these gospels are written uh, years after the fact? Well, one of the reasons is because so far in the early church, we had had these guarantors and tradents of the gospel tradition in the disciples and stuff. And as people started to die off, it was important to get this stuff written down while it was while these people were still alive because part of the whole deal with the inclusio seems to be that if um that that you want to have written the account that includes your source's name while those people are alive if possible because even then after they're dead people will know that was written while they were alive so that they could have challenged it had they wanted to so as people are beginning to die we need to get this stuff written down now into these uh, forms that can live on and can continue uh, a good example of this pointing back to the disciples as the guarantors or tradents is notice that uh, in first corinthians 15 which is not greco-roman biography and in galatians chapter 1 and 2 he's talking about when he received this message he got this from jesus and he went to this is in galatians he went to the home office in jerusalem and checked with them and they added nothing to him so then why is it that in 1 Corinthians 15, he's talking about what was given to him and now is passed on to him and he's passing it on to others is because he wants them to know that I'm, I, didn't get, I didn't need them to get this information. I didn't need the disciples, the apostles to get this information. I didn't need that. But um, they're down with it. You know, I'm pointing to them because they are your guarantors and tradents. So we have these, we have number one, the inclusio that reveals to us probably who these eyewitnesses were. Um, which knocks down what Airman's saying here. And secondly, we need to recognize that these, uh, the difference between oral history and oral tradition, and we have these uh, guarantors and tradents and this inclusio to make sure that the story is, uh, stays you know, true to the facts. So this idea, so, here's, so here's, here's what I want to point out about this, because Matt Dillahunty says this, others say this, and we want to be careful about this. You'll hear people say, we don't know who wrote these books, and we don't have access to the eyewitnesses. Okay, is that true? Yes, it is true that we do not have Cartesian certainty about who wrote these books, and it is true that we don't have access to the eyewitnesses because we never have access, direct access to the eyewitnesses of events that happened before, you know, with people that are now dead. But what it gives the impression is that we have no idea who wrote these books, and we have no idea who the eyewitnesses were. No, we can make a very strong case that based on the genre of literature, we know who, we, we have a good reason to believe, we, we have a good idea who wrote these things, and we have a good reason to believe we know who the eyewitnesses generally were. Oh, by the way, what about it being written in uh, this flowery Greek and stuff when these people spoke Aramaic and all that sort of thing? This has got to be one of the silliest objections because what people are aware of, anyone who studied this for very long is aware of, is that people used amanuensises, they used uh, scribes to write down stuff for them. And so uh, if you understand that aspect of it, it's just not that big of a deal. So let's keep moving now. Where did these authors get their stories from? 
Well, if they were not disciples of Jesus, they must have heard the stories from somebody. Who heard the stories from somebody, who heard the stories from somebody, who heard them from somebody. Stories about Jesus. Do you hear what's happening here in light of everything that I've just said? Do you hear, do you hear what's happened here? Uh, do a study. Go read up on Papias. Read what we have from Papias, what he says about these things. Now, remember, Papias is living at a time when the people who were there with Jesus are still alive and living right down the street from him. And his whole goal is to try to figure out what we know. I mean, so this is in the living memory. These gospels were written in the living, some of them in the cases of while some of these people were still alive, but in the living memory of these disciples. This idea that it's from, it's this big, you know, extrapolated out source to source to source to source to source to now we get the gospels, like he's just giving it. I Think about what I've just said. Read the Bauckham book, read up on Papias, and check out what even skeptical scholars who have written journal articles on this have to say in the journal articles. Remember how I said there's two airmen's. Read what's said in the journal articles. This, including his resurrection, had been in circulation year after year after year from the time that his disciples knew that he got killed and believed he got raised from the dead. They told stories to convert people. They improved the story sometimes. They changed the story sometimes. The stories got modified in the process. By the way, again, this idea that they're not consistent with each other and they contradict each other and that they changed over time, we're going to get to that as we move forward. Process of transmission over the course of decades before anybody wrote the stories down. Okay, this process of transmission, remember, they're still pointing back to the gospel guarantors and trade-ins. They're still giving you the, uh, probably this inclusio of who their eyewitnesses were. These stories are based on oral reports that have been in circulation for decades. What happens to oral reports in circulation year after year, decade after decade? They get changed. What evidence do we have that the stories about Jesus' death and resurrection got changed? You can read the stories yourself. Okay, I think this is where we're going to get to the point that I want to make, but I want you to notice again, we've covered this idea of like the telephone game where things get uh, modified and changed over time and it's not reliable. We've covered all that. You may need to go back and listen to what I said there a couple more times, but it's, it's, it's powerful. And I don't think most people that are, I don't think most of the people that are listening to YouTube videos as Christians or as skeptics, most of them are aware of the work of Bauckham, are aware of the Inclusio, are aware of the Greco-Roman biography, are aware of Mike Lycona's, uh, you know, book from a couple of years ago, uh, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Uh, you, you, you need to, this is why I constantly want to tell those of you that listen to me, don't just watch YouTube videos. I'm glad you're here watching mine. And if you haven't subscribed, please do. I, I'm a YouTube, uh, I'm doing work on YouTube here, but don't just watch YouTube videos. A lot of the people who are making YouTube videos just watch YouTube. Don't do that. Go read these books. Read real books. And they're big books. I'm sorry. They are. But read those books. Don't just read a blog article about the books. Read the books. Read the journal articles. If you're not willing to do that, then please don't make YouTube videos until you've actually done that sort of research. Simply read Mark's account of Jesus' death and then read John's account of Jesus' death and make a list of everything that happens in both and compare your lists. You will find that there are stunning differences. In fact, there are discrepancies. Let me give you just a list of very quick examples.
Break it down for us, Bart. What day did Jesus die on? That's a simple question. And luckily, we're told in both Mark and John. In Mark's gospel, we're told that Jesus died the day after the Passover meal was eaten in Jerusalem. John tells us explicitly, chapter 19, verse 14. Okay, I'm gonna, I, I want you to pay attention to this, and I'm linking the original video, so I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to um, brush this aside, but I want you, I'm going to put this on double speed to get through it. So if you have me on double speed right now, uh, just be aware of that. So I'm, I'm going to get through this. That Jesus died the day before the Passover meal was eaten, on the day of preparation for the Passover. That's different. He couldn't die both days. What about the time? According to Mark, he died at 9 in the morning. According to John, he wasn't, he wasn't condemned to death until afternoon, John 19, 14. These are accounts that differ from one another. Did Jesus carry his cross the entire way to Golgotha, or did Simon of Cyrene carry it? It depends which gospel you read. Did both robbers mock Jesus, or did only one of them mock him and the other come to his defense? It depends which gospel you read. Did the curtain in the temple rip in half before Jesus died, or was it after he died? It depends which gospel you read. I can give you the references for all these if you need me to, or you can look them up yourself. I'm not making these up. Those are just differences about Jesus' death. What about differences in the accounts of his resurrection? Well, who went through the tomb on the third day? Did Mary Magdalene... Okay, I, I want to point out a couple of things here, and I'll slow back down now. Um, but I, I want you to notice a couple of things. Airman is known for this refrain. I've already mentioned in this video of, it depends which gospel you read. It depends which gospel you read. And I want you to notice the impact that Airman has had on the thinking of Internet atheism. Um, the king of YouTube atheism, and I'm not saying that as a slight. I'd like, I'd like to be the king of YouTube Christian videos, okay? So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like uh, slighting him for that. But the king of YouTube atheist videos is Matt Dillahunty. I want you to listen to the following and tell me if you hear Airman here. Did a bunch of zombies march on Jerusalem? What were his last words? Did he carry his own cross? It depends on which gospel you're reading. Who went to the tomb? Was the stone already rolled away? What was in the tomb? Did they tell anybody what they saw? It depends on which gospel you're reading. The gospel accounts aren't contemporary accounts, they aren't first-hand accounts, and they aren't from unbiased sources, and they don't agree from, with the facts. They simply aren't good historical sources, and we don't really have any better sources. Uh, the reason I wanted to play that for you is I wanted you to see how big of an impact airman has had on people and how in some cases they don't even take the time to tell you they just start using that it depends which gospel you read you know uh but uh but hey whatever um but here's the thing i'm going to talk first i'm going to talk first about the women here and then i'm going to talk about the rest of the stuff that airman has said uh but i want to preface it with this there are a couple of ways to think about this if you want to go with a very very conservative uh, reading that you've been getting from apologists for the past several decades, um, which I think is fine, which is called harmonization. Uh, what you can do is check out a book by the late, great Norman Geisler, who as of this video just passed away this week. Um, you, you, you can check out his book on Bible contradictions. He goes through tons of alleged Bible contradictions and explains them. And, and, when you, and some of the ones that you, looking at the page, you're like, oh, I do not see how that comes out of how that is consistent and if some if if someone tried to explain it to me I would feel like they were you know trying to stretch and reach for that but then you read what Geisler says and you're like oh oh shoot yeah uh, that actually makes sense and I think that's probably actually the case um, so that's good those harmonizations are good but not in every case and if you if you want to look at what some scholars are doing with this right now um the way you would go about this is you would you would say, well, let me talk about the women first. So with the case of the women, uh, it is true that in the different Gospels you get different 
numbers of women, different groupings of women. Now, remember what we said about the inclusio in your sources. Um, you might consider the possibility <laughs> that uh, the reason you have different uh, mentions of women at the tomb and, and numbers and all that sort of thing and names is because those are the women that the particular gospel author was either aware of or were his source for that particular thing. So he doesn't necessarily need to mention all the women to accomplish his inclusio. He just needs to mention the one that he knew about or got his information from. So that's a possibility. But with the rest of these things that Airman has listed, and he may continue here in just a moment, I don't know. But with the rest of these things, what you need to get is uh, in Greco-Roman biography, they have these literary devices. Now, some people will be uncomfortable with what I'm about to say, but here are just some of the uh, uh, things that we get. That, that You can read about this in Lycona's Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Here are some of the literary conventions that we have. Transferal, displacement, conflation, compression, spotlighting, simplification, expansion of narrative details, paraphrasing. These are things that Greco-Roman biographers are known to have done within their stories. So back to Plutarch again. Plutarch, gosh, you should read Plutarch. It's fascinating. And he has all of these lives, which is the term for biographies, that he wrote. And in some of these different biographies, as I said before, he'll cover the same story in a different biography that he covered in another one. And this is the same author. Just like in the Gospels, you'll have um, these parallels where one Gospel is telling a story and then another Gospel author is telling the same story. Um, and you'll notice that there, there are what seem like differences, relevant differences in how that story is told. In Plutarch, you have the same author telling you, this, telling you the same story in two different biographies. And guess what? There are relevant differences. Now, is Plutarch an idiot? No, Plutarch's not an idiot. What he's doing is he's using some of these literary conventions. Now, what some people will say about this, some conservative Christians might say about this is, well, you're speaking as though the Gospels aren't writing literal histories. Well, when a particular story in the gospel is not meant to be taken literally, yeah, we shouldn't take it literally. For example, no one denies that certain parables are not, uh, certain parables are not stories that actually happen. Jesus is giving you a parable. We need to be aware of that. But there's more than that. So when we're, we're looking through these gospels, we need to keep in mind the way people at the time writing in the genre that the gospel authors are writing in wrote their history. And if you're a conservative Christian out there or a atheist who was a fundamentalist Christian and then became an atheist and now you're a fundamentalist Christian atheist and still view the Bible very much the way they did. What both categories, Christians and atheists, need to understand is if you are trying to force 21st century historical biography methods onto the way they wrote biography in the first century and, the, and, and ignore the conventions that they used, you're not actually doing a greater service to the text. If you're a Christian, you're not necessarily honoring the text. I know you think you are. I know you feel like you are, and I don't want to take that away from you. But, but actually, that could lead to doing damage to what the text is trying to convey in certain cases because you need to do your hermeneutics properly. You need to do your literary analysis properly to get to what's actually being said. Um, and if you're an atheist and you do that, and you do that then you're actually going to end up attacking a straw man. And guess what? There are still a lot of Christians out there who are unaware of this stuff. And so you atheists out there who, who are hearing me say this right now, you can still have a field day doing some of the stuff that, you've, that atheists have always done with response to these gospel differences. But Christian apologists on the Internet and Christians are becoming more aware of these things all the time. And as they become more aware of it from videos like the one you're watching right now, 
the responses you're going to have to deal with are going to become more complicated. Now, someone say, I can already hear someone saying in the comments, oh, so if it's so complicated, why didn't God just give it to us in a simple way where everybody could understand? I get that all the time in the comments. Um, it is the gospel message. However you understand this literature, the gospel message is easy enough to, under, to understand and grasp, okay? Uh, you know, Jesus is the Son of God. He's God incarnate, and you need to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and he died on the cross for your sins. It's easy enough to understand, but as the criticisms that come from skeptics become more convoluted as they have to to overcome the force of the evidence— then the responses that Christians give are going to become more complicated to respond to these complicated. If you ask a complicated question, you're going to get a complicated answer. And when you start looking at the literature that we're talking about and you start pressing the genre, then we, we're going to have to get a little complicated and go look at how this genre was written at the time and what their conventions were. And when you plug those things in, these things that look like uh, contradictions are not contradictions. It's just the way people wrote. They, they used some of these um, elements like spotlighting, for example. Spotlighting is in Greco-Roman biography is when you, 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 you're focusing on one particular character. So while in another telling of the story, a character might have been mentioned there, we're not mentioning them in this telling because we're spotlighting this particular character. Um, and uh, there are other things like that. So I would encourage you to, to get the books on this and read this stuff. And when you do, all of these, or at least almost all of these, alleged contradictions just evaporate as you understand the proper genre. And the things that still look like contradictions after that go to like Geisler's Bible contradictions thing, and, and you'll see that sometimes harmonizing these things is the right way because there is a harmony. So let's continue. Um, he may go on about this, and I may not say much about it because we've already covered it. Magdalene go alone, or did Mary go with other women? Depends which gospel you read. If with other women, how many of them were there? What were their names? And which ones were they? It depends which gospels you read. Was the stone rolled away before the women got to the tomb or not? What did they see in the tomb? Did they see a man? Did they see two men? Or did they see an angel? Depends which gospel you read. What were they told to tell the disciples? Were the disciples supposed to stay in Jerusalem to see Jesus, or were they supposed to go to Galilee? Okay, I'm going to put this on fast forward again. Uh, so, again, if you have me on double speed, this is going to be on double speed. Depends which gospel you read. Did the women tell anybody, or were they silent about it? Depends which gospel you read. Did the disciples Depends which gospel you read. ever leave Jerusalem? Or did they immediately, did they never leave, or did they uh, leave and go to Galilee? Depends which gospel you read. My conclusion, these are not reliable historical accounts. There are two. Uh, let, me, let me translate what he just said. These are not reliable historical accounts. No, these accounts are not written like 21st century history. They were written according to the genre and literary conventions of the genre that they're written in, of in the period at the time that people were writing this sort of Greco-Roman biography. And we know what those conventions are, can plug them in, and we can understand the story. Too many discrepancies. The accounts are based on not discrepancies, differences, and in some cases there are differences. Nobody denies that there are differences, but you got to ask yourself the question: Why are they there? And looking at the genre and the conventions, you can get that. Oral traditions that have been in circulation for decades, year after year, Christians try to convert others. By okay, I, I can slow it down now because I think he's on to something new. By telling them stories to convince them that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they changed their stories while trying to convince people. These, are Or they wrote for different purposes, and so they told the stories 
according to what those purposes were. And yes, of course they were trying to convince people. Remember the car crash. I'm looking for a non-biased source on whether a car crash happened that can serve as a testimony of the car crash. Yeah, of course, these Christians who, who have eyewitness testimony or were eyewitnesses to the, res to the raised Jesus are going to try to convince people of what they saw, just like someone who saw a car crash is going to try to convince someone of what they saw. These authors were not eyewitnesses. They're Greek-speaking Christians living many years after the fact. They're telling stories that Christians have been telling all these years. There was nobody there taking notes. Some of the stories were invented, many were changed. For this reason, these accounts are not as useful as historians would like us. Oh, now notice something. Look at what he's saying. For these reasons, their accounts are not as useful as we would like them to be. Okay, you can always say that. If, again, if you had video footage from inside the tomb or of the raised Jesus, you could still want 4K video footage, right? I mean, th th this, is, this is giving an impression to the audience and, and, and sending a message. I, I've already covered this. It's historical sources. What I've given you so far is really just kind of child's play compared I agree. to the real problem of why historians cannot prove the resurrection. And this is what I want to spend my last three and a half minutes on, the real problem. Mike and I agree that what historians try to do is establish what most probably happened in the past. That is the task of history. You can't prove the past. You can only give evidence for the past. And some evidence is more certain than other evidence. All the historian can do is show most probably what happened. What are miracles? Miracles, by definition, are the least probable occurrence of an event. If a Let's pause it here on mic for a minute while we talk about this. So, um, so I want, I want to say about this that, first of all, he doesn't go into this in this video, but he has before, so I want to say something about that's related to what he's talking about now, which is this idea that there are these canons of historiography that everybody follows, right? Um, let, me, let me give you the thoughts of a couple of well-known historians uh, who respond to that sort of an idea. Uh, David Hackett Fisher, who's a professor of history at Brandeis University says, specific canons of historical proof are neither widely observed nor generally agreed upon. Thomas Haskell, professor, was, he was professor of history at Rice University says, Quote, the inherently dispersive character of a discipline that, unlike English and philosophy, lacks even the possibility of defining a single canon familiar to all practitioners. So these are working historians, uh, were working historians, who will say that this idea that, that Ehrman has elsewhere proffered, that there are these things that historians always have to follow, and they're the same. And the, 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 these canons of history, and they don't allow for a historian to ever conclude that a miracle occurred. These historians are saying, what are you talking about? What canons? Historians function differently sometimes. Uh, what are you talking about? Where are these written? Are they written in the sky somewhere? Are they written on your heart? Where, where are these things written? So that's an important thing uh, to, to mention. But another thing that, that, I would, that I would say about this 
getting to what he actually specifically said here is the idea that a miracle is the least likely thing to have occurred. Well, okay, what I think Mike would say to this and may say in this video, I don't know, or in this debate, but, but is that um, as a historian, what he can do, even if he granted that historians can't conclude a miracle and that uh, a miracle is the least likely thing to occur, what he could do is he could say, and he has said this on occasion, is fine. I don't have to claim that Jesus rose from the dead, but what I can do is I can say Jesus was dead. We have good historical evidence that Jesus was dead, and we have good historical evidence that uh, people afterwards had experiences that they interpreted as the risen Jesus, and then leave people to draw their own conclusions. That Jesus was dead and that Jesus was alive later. And then how that happened? Okay, the historian can't say a miracle occurred, but that's for someone else to figure out. That's what he could say. I'll tell you what I can say as a person who's not a historian, but can use historical data, but can also use philosophical evidence and everything else. Here's how I'm going to argue that. In my case, I would argue that God exists. In my debates with skeptics, what I try to do is argue first that God exists, using a couple of arguments for that, and then argue that Jesus was raised from the dead, because if God exists and created the universe from nothing, then a miracle is not necessarily uh, the least likely. First of all, it's not impossible, not that Airman would say it's impossible, uh, but it's, it's in the realm of possibility because miracles have already happened, none less than the creation of the universe from nothing. And as I've said elsewhere, if God can create the universe from nothing, then raising Jesus from the dead is small potatoes for him. But secondly, I argue uh, for this what I call recalibrated plausibility. Now, some of you may not be familiar with that. Recalibrated plausibility is a term I've given to an idea that has existed out there in this debate for a while, but I don't think people focus on it to the degree that they should. It is agreed upon almost universally by scholars that Jesus saw himself as God's special agent to bring about the kingdom on earth as if Jesus was walking around holding a sign saying, just watch my life and see what happens. Now, if you, pl if you plug that in, and then you plug in the other resurrection evidences, like the people that Jesus died, that people thought they saw him after his death and they were willing to die for it, then I think that the miracle is not the least likely thing to occur in this case. I'll give you an example. Uh, because what he's really wanting to say is it's an extraordinary claim, and extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Okay, fine. Uh, here's my analogy for this that I've given. And if you want to see me defend this analogy, again, go back to the godless engineer response video that I did. Um, but let's imagine that a group of people in a coffee shop, that you encounter a group of people in a coffee shop excitedly talking about how they've just seen this guy named Neil walking on the moon. Can you believe it? We just saw this guy named Neil walking on the moon. It's unbelievable. It's an extraordinary claim. Now, let's imagine that you hearing this, you don't know anything about NASA or space exploration or anything like that, okay? And you hear this, it would sound like an extraordinary claim. It would sound like uh, the least likely thing to be true in this case, right? But then let's, find, let's imagine that later that day, you come to learn that there is this organization capable of putting a man, of doing something like putting a man on the moon, like NASA, and that in the 1960s, there was this guy named Neil running around saying that he was a part of this NASA special program, right? Okay, now is it the least likely thing? Now is it an extraordinary claim? No, now you believe what they're saying. To, even if it is an extraordinary claim, you now believe that what they're telling you is true. 
because there's a you learned about a sufficient power that's capable of doing something like that and a man who was claiming that he was a part of that program before the fact. Now, the parallel should be easy enough to discover. Um, the group of people in the coffee shop is like the people who were claiming that they saw the risen Christ, okay, and you're aware of them. Sounds like an extraordinary claim. Sounds like the least likely thing to have occurred. But then you learn later uh, that there's good reason to believe God exists from the philosophical arguments that I would give for God's existence. So now there's a power sufficient to do something like a resurrection. That's like NASA, the power sufficient to put someone on the moon. And you learn that there was a guy claiming to be a part of God's special program as if he was saying, watch my life and just see what happens. Like Neil, claiming that he was a part of NASA's special program before they put him on the moon. And just like in the case of Neil, you would have to say, okay, I think that even though this is an extraordinary claim, and I might have thought it was the least likely thing to have occurred, now I actually think the most reasonable thing for me to do is to believe it. Then if that's how you would assume in that case, and I think it is because we all agree that he went to the moon, then uh, in this case with Jesus, you would have to say, okay, then despite airmen's barking about this, it's not the least likely thing. And it's even though it's an extraordinary claim, it seems like we have sufficient evidence for it. And so we have what we've done is we've recalibrated our plausibility. How have we recalibrated it? Well, in the case of NASA, we learned about NASA, a power to do it, and, and Neil, a guy claiming to be a part of that program. And in the case of the Gospels, we find out about a God capable of doing something like resurrection and Jesus, a person claiming to be a part of God's special program. We recalibrate the plausibility, and now this miracle is not the least likely thing to have occurred. If a miracle was not least probable, it wouldn't be a miracle. If somebody could walk across your lukewarm, the lukewarm water in your swimming pool, that would be a miracle. If the water was frozen, it would not be a miracle. But if it's lukewarm, I can tell you, none of you here could do it, and nobody in this world could do it. That's six billion people, so what are the chances of one person being able to do it? It would defy the way nature naturally works. I'm not saying that there are natural laws that are written down someplace that you can't break or you get in big trouble. Uh, scientists today don't talk about natural laws, but scientists do talk about... By the way, one great contribution from Alvin Plantinga to my lexicon of terminology is when people talk about a miracle, they, they talk about, like he, I think he just said, defy the way that the universe works, or uh, sometimes people will say a violation of certain natural laws and those sorts of things. Um, that's not the right way to look at it. It's, when you're talking about a God, creator of everything, and it's his cosmos, you don't, it's not a violation of anything. It's an intervention. You can say he intervenes in the normal course of the way things are going in, uh, uh, with a miracle. Uh, but here's, but, but I, the impression that's often given is that something like a contradiction has happened, which is absurd. If I drop, if I drop this coffee cup, which I won't, I love this coffee cup. My secretary gave it to me. Is U2 on there? U2 is my favorite rock band. If I drop this coffee cup, then. Uh, natural law is going to require that this coffee cup is going to fall downward and hit the ground and may, and it might even break. Okay. Um, but if while it's falling, I, a natural human being intervene and stop it from falling, then have I violated or defied natural law? No, I intervened and caused something to happen that would not have happened on its own. Right. Um, and so there's no contradiction in that. 
And in the same way, if God intervenes and changes what would have been the outcome, he hasn't violated anything. He hasn't defied anything. He simply intervened, just like I would intervene and stop my coffee cup from falling. So um, little nuances in language here, slippery stuff. We got to be careful about highly predictable ways that, that, that this world works. And one of the ways it works is that if you are a sentient human being trying to walk across the lukewarm water in your swimming pool, you won't be able to do it. What if somebody could do it? What would be the chances? They'd be, the chances would be infinitesimally remote that anybody could do it. Well, what if somebody could? Okay, let's say somebody could. The chances of them being able to do it are infinitesimally remote. Can you prove that this person probably did it? Okay, this goes back to uh, a thing that a lot of people say this and they need to say it in response to this is like what, what we're dealing with is almost like the idea. It's almost like he's saying, talking about Jesus being raised naturally from the dead or walking on water naturally or something. Like it, what are the chances that Jesus would naturally come back from the dead after however many days? What are the chances that he would naturally be able to walk on water? Yeah, infinitesimal. I agree with you. But that's not the claim, is it? The claim isn't that Jesus was naturally raised. I agree with you. That's the least likely thing to have occurred. But the claim that a God who exists, based on arguments we can give to that effect, and I have done, uh, that God raised Jesus from the dead. Okay, now the chances that God would be able to raise someone from the dead is not infinitesimally small. No, you can't prove it because you can't repeat the experiment of the past to show he did it. That's the problem with history. It's not like the natural sciences. Okay, now notice something here. That's the problem with history. Now, he's talking about a barrier that all historians have to deal with, which is that we can't repeat certain historical events, right? Is that a problem for the resurrection? Not any more than it's a problem for anything in history right? That needs to be pointed out. So again, what we're getting now is, again, a backing into this statement. What we have is not what historians would love to have. Well, of course, they'd love to have video footage, but that's not, that's a different statement than what we have is sufficient for them to make claims about the life and later appearances of Jesus. The natural sciences work by repeated demonstration. And so, for example, if I wanted to show you that bars of iron will sink in that swimming pool and bars of ivory soap will float, all I need to do is to get 100 bars of both and start chucking them in. I'll chuck in 100 bars of iron, they'll sink every time. I'll chuck in the soap, they'll float every time. That gives us a predictive probability of what will happen the 101st time. That's how sciences work by repeated experimentation. Uh, great. Thank you for pointing out, Bart, that history... Uh, and the way we gather historical evidence is different than how we do science. Science and history, uh, while there may be some overlap, uh, natural science and history are a little bit different in certain respects. Good job. High five. Historians don't have that luxury. Historians can only establish on the basis of surviving evidence what probably happened in the past, and by definition, miracles are the least probable occurrence or else they're not a miracle. Right, we've already talked about this. If you need to review it, please review it. This creates the dilemma for the historian and is the reason why historians cannot prove Jesus was raised from the dead. What historians could demonstrate, and I'm not going to use the word prove, is they could demonstrate that most probably Jesus died and most probably 
people thought that he appeared to him after his death and that most probably those people were willing, many of them, to die for that claim. That's what most probably happened. And then they could take off their historian hat and say, so what do I think about that? It seems like the best explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. And if that historian happens to believe in God and that there's good reason to believe that God exists, then he could conclude a miracle. And this idea that a historian can't conclude a miracle because of some invisible canons, well, we've seen historians point out that no such canons exist. Dead. Historians, by the very nature, establish what most probably happened in the past, but a miracle by its definition is the least probable occurrence in the past. Um, if you pile on a bunch of assertions like that, or assumptions like that, we're talking about whether Jesus was raised naturally, which the very idea that we're talking about a miracle means you, we're not talking about that. And uh, if you believe that there's a God that exists that could do something like this and that Jesus said that he was a part of God's special program and all these things that we talked about with recalibrated plausibility, if you ignore all of that, then okay, fine. Asked. The least probable occurrence cannot be most probable. This is the problem with the resurrection. Even if it happened, it defies imagination and cannot be accepted as a historically proven event. Belief in the resurrection. If you believe in the resurrection, it is for theological reasons. The resurrection is a theological assertion about what God did to Jesus. It is not and it cannot be based on historical says Bart Ehrman. But again, where are these canons of history? So uh, as we as we come to the close here, are we at the close? Thank you. Yeah, we're at the close. So as, as we're done here now, what I, what I want to say is where he leaves off, where he leaves off and he, he leaves you with this assertion that if you believe in the resurrection, it is purely on theological grounds and can and, ha, and is not based on historical evidence. Um, where he leaves off there, he's not telling you you can't be a Christian. Notice, he's not saying you shouldn't be a Christian. He's just saying you only have theological reasons, not historical reasons. Now, where he leaves off, the Jesus Seminar, which is becoming more and more irrelevant all the time, but is a, the Jesus Seminar is a group of uh, skeptical, liberal scholars that will, some of them don't claim to be Christians. Some of them don't believe Jesus ever existed, but some of them, uh, well, I know of at least one that doesn't believe, and that's Robert Price. But um, the, the Jesus Seminar, you have guys like John Dominique Crossan, and you had guys like Robert Funk, and all these guys. They, they, these people are not uh, Orthodox Christians in the sense that they don't believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. So, uh, and in fact, in a debate between John Dominique Crossan and William Lane Craig, Crossan accidentally kind of was forced into kind of admitting that he's an atheist and doesn't believe God exists because Craig asked him something like, in the Jurassic period, before human beings existed, do, do you believe that, that God exists? And I think he says something like, well, I'd have to say probably not. Okay, well, you're an atheist then. Why are you saying that you're a Christian? And at a point like this, that's where Ehrman leaves off and guys like that are ready to grab you up and say, you know what? You can be a part of 
um, churches that are more liberal and don't take they they believe that uh, the, the historical stuff is is not you know, it doesn't really even matter if Jesus physically bodily rose from the dead it doesn't matter if it's just all a spiritual metaphor for something but you can still be a Christian you can still call yourself a Christian and then you can feel good with your family at Thanksgiving when they ask you if you're still a Christian and you can say hey I'm still a Christian but what they don't know is going on into the hood is you're, you're really not in any recognizable orthodox way a Christian, all right? But it's an it's in middle of the road. So what what's going on right now is atheists would love for people to just to be atheists, okay? But the next best thing is for you to basically be an atheist. And you can still call yourself a Christian, but in 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 no cultural sense, the in no in no in in terms of your morality and what you view as right and wrong and where you stand on political issues and where you stand in every other way you function as an atheist because you're technically an atheist but you're still holding on to all the christian imagery and the bible and the meaning and all that's trying to hold on to all that stuff through something like the jesus seminar and so i'm not saying that airman is trying to do that i don't think that he is but that's what happens is you see something like this you believe it on theological instead of historical grounds and then these other guys like the jesus seminar say yep and we're here to help you out with that and so what's gone on is really systematic whether it's intentionally systematic or not. So I really enjoyed this. And by the way, I want to say right here, and I should do this in more of my videos. If, if you're listening, I just had someone tell me the other day that they were agnostic. And then from watching these response videos, they became a Christian. There are others of you out there like that. And I know I'm going to be mocked for this in, in the comments section. But I want, to, I want to say to those of you that are genuinely on the fence, there is good reason to believe that God exists. <laughs> I mean, I'm blown away that people don't believe that at least that some God exists. All right, there's good reason to believe that God exists. There's good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead bodily as a historical event. And if you're on the fence, I want to invite you just to go ahead. It, it, you know, there's always going to be a step of trust, a step of that kind of faith, trust, loyalty, um, uh, on the basis of evidence. But there's always going to be a little bit of that. But it's not some wild leap in the dark. It's not some blind faith in some modern American colloquial sense. It's taking a step of trust. You know, when I used to go cliff jumping, uh, 40 feet from the top of that cliff to the surface of the water, uh, you know, I, I had good reason to believe I'd be fine. I'd seen people down below swimming around in the water. I'd been in the water down below. There's nothing underneath the surface that's going to hurt me. There's nothing, you know, I, I had good reason to believe I'd be fine. There was good evidence I'd be okay. But there's still that step of trust where you've got to say, okay, now I'm going to trust this evidence and trust that God is going to do for me in the future what he said he's going to do based on what I have good reason to believe he did in the past. And I'm going to take that step. And you know what? It's standing at the top of a cliff when you're looking down 40 feet below at water. It's scary. And everything inside of you cries out, might cry out that this is, this is dangerous. And how do I know for sure? And against all of that, you've got to take that step of trust that I'll be okay. And then you are. Um, and I would say that the same is true here. There's really good reason. There's really good evidence to believe the Christian message. But for some of you, today is the day. Right now is the day to take that step and don't wait another day because I do believe and I'm not afraid to tell you that I believe there is much at stake and you don't know how long you've got and today is the day to take that step do that and then let me know about that I'd love to know you can send me a private message on Facebook you can send me a direct message on Twitter you can put it in the comments if you're willing to do that you can ask me in the comments for, for a, a, some kind of a phone call or something I want to talk to you if that's you let me know about that and if you're out there and you believe in these videos, hey, uh, ch check out our other videos, the ones I've done on other responses. And um, 
If you want to support what we're doing, uh, there's no requirement to do that, but if, obviously, but if, if you want to do that, you can click in the top right-hand corner of this screen and do that, or you can visit us at patreon.com slash trinityradio. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. Oh, and by the way, when it comes to Airman's case against the resurrection, I'm unimpressed.